Before I was even ordained, I worked in mental health, and I was kind of thrown in the deep end from the start. Uh, Presbyterian and I combined have over 30 years of experience working in mental health, and uh, it's something I enjoy. Metropolitan Nicholas is kind enough to allow me to keep my license current, and I see maybe two or three clients a week just in the evenings uh, just to keep my credentials current, and so I appreciate that. But uh, we've continued to speak at conferences and things throughout the country. Elizabeth is very involved in that. She'll probably tell you a little bit more about it. So when Father Alex, thank you, Father Alex asked me to come and talk about anxiety and depression, uh, but specifically amongst young people and how it affects some of our younger generation. So the things that I'm going to be discussing with you are going to range from ages 6 all the way to 35, okay? So it's going to be from the very small kindergarten age all the way up to young adults, what they consider the top end of the millennials around the 35. So how many of you are familiar with Barna? The Barna Research Group and the Pew Research Institute, they're actually two Christian organizations and they do a lot of research regarding uh, Christians in culture. So it's the Barna and the Pew Research Group and they actually did uh, a seminar this past week where they had interviewed over 77,000 young people in America. And they were talking about how we can understand some of the things that we see in the church and some of the continuous uh, movement we see with our young people away from church and things like that. One of the things that they said is, this generation needs an emotionally connected church. Okay? And how practicing the faith the practice of the faith is what makes the most impact to our youth today. Okay? 35% of the U.S. workforce is made up of millennials. That's, that's a big chunk of it. And it's actually the most diverse group in recent history. And yet, only one-third, only one-third of the millennials that they interviewed expressed that they felt someone believed in them. That's a very low number, only one-third. And so it leaves us asking, and this was a question that they asked in this uh, commentary, Barna, they were saying, are we stretching and encouraging the kids today, these young people, to be what they can be, to reach their potential? Because you see, when it comes to millennials and some of the young people, things that I didn't have to worry about, they're constantly being inundated from things from screens. And when they're looking at social media and it gets out that this popular idea that millennials are lazy and entitled, and they're reminded of that constantly by the things that they see and hear, they begin to get it in their head. And so they don't feel that their parents and their leaders and their church leaders actually believe that they're capable of that much. Despite having the ability to be connected more than any other generation in the past, many of the young adults age 18 to 35 describe chronic feelings of being alone. Chronic feelings of being alone and expressed anxiety and concerns about security for the future, any sense of certainty and security in the future. Now, I'm gonna tell you on the front end, our goal today is really twofold, okay? We are going to, first of all, talk about some of these important numbers and statistics to give you a snapshot. Some of you may be bored out of your mind and say, I don't really care about the data. Stick with me. Some of you may be engineers or physicians or have that mindset that you're like, I love this, give me more information, this is fascinating. Stick with it. It's not just about understanding it. The second part is we want to give you a different paradigm, a different framework to maybe see and understand these things 
through an orthodox lens. And so we'll talk about that, and that'll mostly be what Presbytheta gets into. Okay? So we'll get into some of those things. One out of five young adults express chronic feelings of anxiety. And they feel less connected to the world. Millennials today, they delay marriage and family in forsake of career, which has become a priority. Okay? And we as the church have to ask, are we constructing thoughtful responses to the things that we're seeing the young people dealing with today that we maybe didn't deal with a generation or two ago? Mentoring, intergenerational mentoring, was one of the key things that they said is important for us in the church to understand needs to be taking place. So I'm hoping that Father Alex, you know, if they have something in mind that they're doing stuff like this. One of the things that I do at my parish is I try to find we'll get ministry started, whether it's a prayer team or we'll have a Bible study, and I'll try to recruit people who have an interest and a desire to participate, usually young people, and I'll say, I need you to kind of help take this over. Can you run this? Can you do certain things for me? Of course, I'm always watching over them, but I'm giving them responsibility, and they make it their own. They have an investment in it then, and they do respond differently when that's the case. In the absence of good guidance, young adults believe what their devices tell them. And I already mentioned a little bit about that. Lack of professional and financial security significantly contributes to feelings of anxiety, outlook, and a lack of connectedness. Okay? Gender has been shown to be a factor as well, and I'll get into some more details about that as, in a little bit. When asked about anxiety regarding these topics that I just went through, about security and the future and things like that, women, 47% versus men, 35% express more anxiety. Women across the board in all of these resources and the statistics have shown higher levels of anxiety and depression, young women, than men when compared. Okay? There's this thing called ambient anxiety or even choice anxiety that we're hearing about now, something that I didn't have to think about growing up because of the amount of options that people have now. Does that make sense? When I was growing up, if you want to talk on the phone, you're sitting in the kitchen, you got that stupid cord to the wall, and you hated it because you couldn't wait to get off the phone because you didn't want to stand in the kitchen with that silly phone. If someone then had told me something the size of a wallet you'll be able to carry around with you and talk to people across the other side of the world and send an email, first of all, I would have said, what is email? But then I would have thought that was science fiction. It's hard to imagine just how quickly things have moved, even within a generation or two. So the amount of options that young people feel today. These feelings of overwhelm. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, I want to read a brief quote here from them. It is a normal part of development for teens to experience a wide range of emotions. It is typical, for instance, for teens to feel anxious about school or friendships or to experience a period of depression following the death of a close friend or family member. Mental health disorders, however, are characterized by persistent symptoms that affect how a young person thinks, feels, and acts. Mental health disorders also can interfere with regular activities and daily functioning, such as relationships, schoolwork, sleeping, and eating. Depression is said to affect one out of every eight adolescent teens. Okay? Adolescents who experience uh, symptoms of depression most every day, nearly every day, for at least two weeks, 
are having what is called a major depressive episode. Let me say that again. People, adolescents or young people who experience symptoms of depression, most of the day, nearly every day, for at least two weeks. They kind of have these criteria that the departments of psychiatry, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, are you familiar with that instrument? Okay, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, they come out with a new one every generation or so. And the National Institute of Mental Health, these, they kind of develop these criteria so that mental health professionals can observe, collect data, and make diagnoses. Okay. And the number of adolescents who experience major depressive episodes have increased by nearly a third from 2005 to 2014. Just think about that. Nine years, from 2005 to 2014, it's jumped up 33%. That's a huge increase. Let me pause there for a second. I don't know most of you. In my Bible studies, I know people and I can kind of read, so I'm trying to get a sense of where everyone's at. Are we falling asleep or are we sticking with this? How many people think this is interesting? Okay, yeah. My body language monitor must be off. Looks like everyone's about to take a nap. Okay, I'll keep going. I, hey, I worked all morning, I know. All right, this is important. Depression, other mental health disorders, and substance use disorders are major risk factors for suicide. The second leading cause of death for 15 to 24 year olds it's now the second. It used to be the third. It's now moved up to the second cause of death for 15 to 24-year-olds. And that's according to the uh, Department of Health and Human Services. The New York Times recently published some information I thought was interesting. And psychologists that they had talked to said that they've actually tied a growth in the mental health issues that we're seeing, some of these jumps in statistics. They've actually tied some of it amongst teenagers to increased use of social media, academic pressure, and frightening events like terror attacks and school shootings. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was in school, you maybe had to worry about getting a little bit of bullying, or something like that, or getting cut off the basketball team. Those were my biggest anxieties, you know. Is the guy that's three years, you know, ahead of me, you know, he's going to be a bully this year or something, or am I going to get cut from the basketball team? We never really thought about people bringing guns into the school and shooting up the place. They have worries today that I didn't have to think about. So psychologists are saying that these things that we're seeing, the academic pressure, the media use, social media use, and some of these events that are being public now are factors in that. This fear of missing out. Have you heard of this term, FOMO? Yes. FOMO? <laughs> who, came, who came up with this? Fear of missing out, FOMO. First time I heard someone say FOMO, I thought they were speaking Greek for a moment. And I was like, <laughs> I've never heard this word. And they're like, no, no, it means fear of missing out. But it's a thing now. And that this is actually one of the stressors and this constant surveillance by peers on social media. So a study released in 2017 found that the number of children and adolescents admitted to children's hospitals for thoughts of self-harm or suicide had more than doubled from 2008 to 2015. And this actually echoes some of the trends we're seeing in the federal uh, data as well. Anxiety, not depression, is actually the leading mental health issue amongst young Americans. And clinicians and researchers both suggest that it is rising. The latest study actually in the April edition of the Journal of Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics, they said that uh, based on data collected from national surveys, 
children's health ages 6 to 17, that's very young, 6 to 17, found a 20% increase in diagnoses of anxiety just from 2007 to 2012. That's five years. Five years, there was a 20% jump. And the physicians or pediatricians were saying they were shocked to see such a huge jump. All of these things have taken place relatively recently. Okay. Now, how many of you, if asked, could say you could probably identify what are the symptoms of anxiety or depression? Do you feel pretty comfortable with that? Raise your hand if you feel like you could. Okay, so a few of you. Okay. I'll go over a little bit of that. Uh, I don't want to bore you with anything that you all feel comfortable with, but there are actually different types of anxiety disorders. Can anyone name an anxiety disorder you've heard of, or maybe ones that... You know, the kids throw around. I'm sure their friends talk about, oh, I was diagnosed this, you know, ADHD, or I was diagnosed that. Do we have any idea of what? Uh, generalized anxiety. Generalized anxiety disorder. Very good. Separation anxiety. Separation anxiety. Good. Social anxiety. Social anxiety. Okay. Good. Yeah. And, I mean, when working with children, the Center for Disease Control just kind of put together this little checklist for people, and this is regarding children, so preteens. Uh, being afraid when away from parents would be an example of separation anxiety. Having extreme fear about a specific thing, situation, such as dogs, insects, or going to the doctor. You want to guess what that is? Phobias, very good. Being afraid of school and other places where people are, social anxiety. Being worried about the future and about things ha bad things happening. That's the generalized anxiety disorder. Having repeated episodes of sudden, unexpected, intense fear that comes with symptoms like heart pounding, trouble breathing, dizziness, shaking, or sweating. You want to guess what that is? It's a panic disorder. Yeah, it's a panic disorder. Anxiety may actually be present as fear or worry, but it can also make children irritable and angry. Uh, these and symptoms can also include trouble sleeping, as well as physical symptoms like fatigue, headaches, or stomach aches. Just some things to kind of keep on your radar you're working with kids and you're talking to your kids. Some anxious children also keep their worries to themselves. Okay? And these symptoms can be missed because a lot of kids don't necessarily feel that there's space to step into and to talk with their friends and family members about some of these things. Now, examples or behaviors of uh, depression that we often see in children. I won't go through all of these because as many of you said, you feel like you could get a sense of that. Obviously, feeling sad hopeless or irritable a lot of the time, okay? Not wanting to do fun things that we enjoy. Can anyone think of others? Those of you who raised your hand, you feel pretty comfortable. What would be some examples of symptoms of depression? Sleeping, Sleeping a lot, very good. What else? Low energy. Low energy, fatigue, yep, okay. No appetite, no appetite. yes. Anything else? Seclusion, right? Seclusion, yes, seclusion's big. Yeah, and you know, not eating a lot or the opposite, eating a lot, just trying to self-soothe with uh, food. You know, it's a way of kind of medicating, especially if there's a, some addictive compulsions there. Okay, very good. Feelings of worthlessness or use, uselessness or guilt. Okay, self-injury. Self-injury and self-destructive behavior. They're also symptoms of depression. Now, I hate to say this, and I touched on it earlier uh, for you ladies, gender differences between depression and anxiety. Adolescent girls 
are more than twice as likely to experience depression than boys. Okay? They say it's about almost 16%, like 15.9% versus 7.7%. Okay, and that's in the statistics. And you know, they gave a whole list here. Uh, this is the Child Mind Institute. They did a study on this. It was very well done. And they actually went through all of these different disorders that we talked about, phobias, social anxiety, separation anxiety, PTSD, and they actually gave statistics of boys versus girls. And consistently in all the categories, young women struggled more with these issues than the men, okay, than the young boys. They're saying that anxiety and depression are actually on the rise. High school students today have more anxiety symptoms and are twice as likely to see a mental health professional as teens in the 1980s, okay? And according to a 2017 study by Mental Health America, I wanted to read this real quick. States with higher rankings have lower prevalence of mental illness and higher rates of access to care for youth. So they rated all the states in regards to not only the number of diagnoses of people diagnosed mentally ill having a mental disorder, but also they said, are resources available for them? Is there proper care available for them? Does anyone want to take a guess where Michigan fell in that ranking? Just take a guess. Do you think we did better? Like better or worse than the average? Really? You'll be happy to know we did far better. Rank 14th. 14 out of 50 or 51, whatever. How many states are there now? 14. Yeah, I know. Am I? elementary school teacher would be shaking her head right now. I can't believe it. Minnesota was ranked best. Arkansas was ranked worst. Okay. So we're 14th. So that was actually, I thought that was encouraging to see not only do we have fewer young people in our state that have been diagnosed with mental health issues when compared to other states, but also that we have far more resources available to them for those who are seeking help. And I, I was happy to see that. Now, how many of you are physicians? How many of you work in the medical field, you're nurses? Okay, so we have a few. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of this stuff because I, I have a doctorate, but it's not in medicine and it's not in nursing, it's not in neurology. So I have to get all this from these other sources. Brain development, like the body, goes through growth spurts and periods of gradual change before reaching maturity, okay? And the largest part is what? the frontal cortex, right? The cortex of the brain. And it's actually divided into lobes that mature from the back to the front. Okay, you know this from one of the... <laughs> and yeah, and the last section to actually connect is the frontal lobe, which is responsible for cognitive processes such as reasoning, planning, and judgment. Okay, and normally this merger is not complete, according to neurological researcher, Dr. David Urian, until, you want to guess what age? 26. They actually didn't distinguish for gender on that. They said that, you know, the brain development, it usually finishes that process mid-20s, 25 to 30. They said it takes, normally those connectors are not fully done until 25 to 30, which means when you're working with your teenagers, your children, your grandchildren, your godchildren, you have to keep in mind under construction, okay? We got work going on up here. Not everything is connected yet. They have powerful minds and the plasticity of their brains is tremendous of what they can learn. Language, music, far easier when you're younger. 
But all of those connections are not being made when it comes to judgment, logical processes, reasoning. So my, you might say, here's a very cogent argument of why you should not steal the car keys and go out at night. They may not be connecting all those dots the way you are. There's lots of emotions and hormones getting in the way of all of that. Okay. Over time, our brains have actually been subjected to the amount of cognitive input that it is today. It's unbelievable the amount that we take in today through advertisements, television, social media. And although children can learn these things that I mentioned, music and language, more easily than adults, it also, this plasticity, makes their brains more vulnerable okay, to external stressors. So as Father James mentioned, I am going to get into more of a, just the paradigm, how we can understand depression and anxiety through uh, our Orthodox faith perspective. And um, I'm going to go over a couple of common causes for depression. If 70% of young people identify their peers as having mental health issues, what do they think about themselves? Right. So most people don't want to admit they have a problem. However, teenagers typically tend to, I don't know, lean into that camp of woe is me, um, you know, something's wrong, uh, a little dramatic, right, a little bit emotional, typically speaking. Um, of course, I'm using stereotypes here, so forgive me if it doesn't fit. So what I want to, the point I want to make with that, though, is that perception is reality, right? So if, you, if you, the young person in your life or you yourself are perceiving yourself as feeling depressed, less motivated than usual, then that's something to listen to. Um, even if you don't fit the diagnostic of frequency, intensity, and duration measures of being able to diagnose depression, every human being experiences depression and anxiety. It's part of our, it's part of our fall and how we're made. So just because it may not fit the diagnostic criteria, it is still important to listen to it. And listening to depression and anxiety is part of the paradigm shift. Um, so instead of thinking about depression and anxiety as this thing to fix, right? it's not a broken arm. It is, it's an it's a internal condition that is a result of various things. There's never one variable that will result in anxiety and depression. So one of, it, so if, if a young person's brain isn't fully developed yet until their mid-20s, late 20s, and they are told, well, you just need to pray more to feel better, right? How do you think they're going to be able to ingest that? They're not going to have the full cognitive cap capability to be able to take that very good advice and actually apply it. Instead, more, more times out of, nine times out of ten, I would say, um, someone who does struggle and suffer with depressive symptoms um, or anxiety symptoms, they're going to interpret that advice as, it's my fault, I'm not doing better. Why? It's my fault I'm not, that I'm suffering this way because I'm not praying enough. I'm not reading my Bible enough. I'm not going to church enough. So it's my fault. Instead of looking at the depression and anxiety um, as a delivery system, which I'm going to get to in a minute, has a message to send to us. So people who experience depression oftentimes have a shame-based personality or just that mental filter. Now, even though a brain develops, you know, continues to develop after 25 years old, adults 
can still, the person who had that, that uh, shame-based perspective or mental filter in their youth, they may still have that after that frontal cortex is more developed. Right, so that's, that's one of those spiritual growths that we all strive toward, is to have our mental filter clear and clean so we can better understand all the stimulation coming at us and all the choices we have at us, or have before us. So if the world says to fix depression and anxiety, orthodoxy teaches to approach it with the compassion of Christ, who can redeem suffering and make it purposeful. Okay? That's the paradigm shift. That's the true message of healing. So we wouldn't say the same thing about a broken arm. Right? We'd say, oh, you need to go to the hospital and get that reset and fixed. So to say this paradigm again, because it, it can take a while to really wrap your brain around it, is that we approach depression and anxiety with the compassion of Christ, who can redeem the suffering and make it purposeful. So while depression and anxiety can cause unnecessary suffering, we pause, right? In, in our Christian faith, we're taught to have watchfulness. The Greek word is nepsis. So we take pause to listen to the pain and to look at how Christ can redeem that suffering instead of just wanting to escape the suffering or make it go away. So instead of looking at depression as something to get rid of, we learn how to listen to it. What is the message that it's trying to tell you or the people in your life? What is the message of anxiety? Um, I'll give some examples of, of those messages here in just a minute. First, I want to share with you a quote from one of my favorite authors, um, Archbishop Anthony Bloom. He has these awesome little books that take me a year to get through because they're just so rich of courage to pray and beginning to pray. And he says here, the gospel tells us that the kingdom of God is within us first of all. If we cannot find the kingdom of God within, if we cannot meet God within, in the very depths of ourselves, then our chances of meeting him outside of ourselves are very remote. He goes on to say, I don't mean that we must go inward in the way one does in psychoanalysis or psychology. It's not a journey into my own inwardness. It is a journey through myself in order to emerge from the deepest level of self into the place where God is, the point at which God and I meet. Okay, I told you it took me a whole year to get through one little book because of quotes like this. It's deep, it's rich. Let me unpack it just briefly here. If we are to better understand depression and anxiety and as I said a moment ago 100% of the population experiences it to some degree if we are to better understand it we have to be willing to look inside and that's what he's he's offering the invitation of not looking inside for our own sake of self-awareness we look at me I have a therapist you know it's a status symbol in lots parts of the country but more of looking inside to see what is God wanting to teach me about him through this depression? What is he wanting me to learn about my relationship with him? What is he inviting me into through this anxiety? Another wonderful quote from the book Guide to Orthodox Therapy, Psychotherapy, 
is the practice of the Orthodox Christian religion assumes a relationship between the spiritual and the psychological life. In these two quotes, I could give you 20 more, but these two just get us started at this paradigm shift of looking inward instead of just trying to fix the pain and make it go away. Depression and anxiety are inner alarm systems because we are hardwired to avoid pain. These alarm systems oftentimes go ignored and they go ignored so long that the depression has to get louder and louder or the anxiety has to get louder and louder. The result usually um, it results in extreme reaction. So sometimes a panic attack or sometimes just feeling really on edge and you don't, know, you don't really have a reason why. There's nothing stressful going on at that moment. Or not being able to get out of bed one day and really not knowing why. There's just an accumulation of stressors causing that feeling. So listening to these inner alarm systems requires that pause. So we avoid pain and we have to learn how to take pause. And the early church fathers, I'm assuming Father Alex and Father Nick have taught on these things, that the early church fathers talk a lot about um, how important that introspection is to be able to take that pause and listen to what's happening inside. So first, you have to learn how to do this for yourself before you can help a loved one do it or a child that you know is suffering. Question five and six on your page, they're more self-reflective. And so these are some redeemed purposes of depression. And then I'm going to go into some redeemed purposes of anxiety, just to give you some examples of how this paradigm shift can, can be very real and tangible. So introspection is sometimes a benefit of depression. So self-absorption would be the, the unhealthy version of introspection. And that can be transformed into self-reflection and then can actually help improve skills of taking our thoughts captive, as St. Paul says. That inner stillness and that watchfulness can actually become the fruit of depression. Depression also helps balance anxiety, so it's a seesaw, right? If your anxiety is high, then depression is down. Okay, good, I feel better, I have lots of energy, and then all of a sudden I have too much energy, I have too much on my plate, and then it switches. Depression goes up to slow you down to reduce the anxiety. And it's this constant balancing process. And I'm using general terms here. Father James did a great job of giving you guys the, the stats on youth. I'm speaking more general because this information applies to young and old. It, it applies to everybody. One of the other redeemed purposes of depression is to redirect your energy so um, how many of you, when you get a cold, you feel peppy and energetic, right? No. Sometimes people get a cold and they actually experience depression. They real, like, the cold is gone and they feel better physically, but there's a sense of like, my motivation isn't back. I can't really think straight. My, my thinking is really cloudy, right? So, so depression had a function during your illness and then it just hasn't lifted or been transferred um, or transformed after the illness. And then lastly, and in my opinion, most importantly, most relevant, is that grief is one of the redeemed purposes of depression. 
that if we don't re- deal with our grief, if we don't deal with loss, then depression is trying to say, don't leave this behind. Don't forget about that painful loss. Deal with it. Bring closure to it. Take it to Christ. Right? That's the redemptive quality of depression. Is It can be this inner hand inside your head saying, pray for me. Help this loss. This is painful. Um, so it's, it's pulling you towards pain in order to enter into that compassion of Christ. All right, so then moving on to redeemed purposes of anxiety, I mentioned a minute ago it balances out depression. It can also prompt us to pray for whatever or whomever the anxiety is about. So I tell my clients all the time, um, you know, how can you befriend your anxiety um, and consider how it might be trying to help you? And if I give them this reframe, or sometimes they come up with it on their own, of you can use anxiety to help you draw closer to Christ in the midst of that pain. Um, I also want to say something here that um, I believe, and this is not scriptural, this is not, I haven't found this in research, it's just my 15 years of experience in in the office. I believe that parents have a, um, an exception that they get to worry about their kids in a certain level in a certain way that God understands that you're going to worry about your, the young people in your life because there's a certain kind of bond that parents have with children that is like no other and it's the same kind of worry if you will that God has for us right? we are his children and he cares for us So it's when that worry, if you think about it on a volume knob, it's when that worry goes from a three or a four that's healthy all the way to a seven or eight that it becomes very problematic, right? So it's not that we want to get rid of worry so much as we want to dial it down so that we can actually help let it motivate us. We know from neurobiology that that is one of the physiological functions of anxiety is motivation and energy. Um, another really practical one simply is if there's something unsafe out in the world, if there's a person that's not safe that maybe crosses over too many emotional boundaries um, or just is like rageful, like your anxiety is going to go up to tell you stay away, right? So that's just a very practical one. Lastly, preemptive mental tasking. So anxiety can show up in ruminating thoughts. Um, rehearsing mental um, thoughts. It could be rehearsing what I'm going to say in a social situation. It could be rehearsing what I did say in a social situation um, to prevent you from making mistakes, um, either, again, in the future or um, rehearsing something in the past so that you, ha- so you can remember, like, oh, wait, don't do that again. Right? So there's this very fundamental function to anxiety, and when we can when we can understand the function of it, we don't have to fight against it so hard because fighting against it just amps it up. Okay, that's the point of this paradigm shift, this reframe, is because we don't want to fuel the fire. We want to be able to calm with comfort and understanding, and that is the compassion of Christ. Some of the causes of depression and anxiety can be things so simple as uh, temperament, um, so just a genetic makeup. If, if your temperament is melancholic, you're just going to be more low energy in, in general. doesn't mean you're necessarily depressed, but other people might think you are. 
where you might be reading something and be like, oh gosh, am I depressed? But maybe not. Maybe you're just melancholic, right? So there's other factors to take into consideration besides um, all the things we've already discussed. So melancholic temperament is just one that's low energy versus someone who's exuberant and very boisterous, just by nature. Um, introverts and extroverts, right? So if you're super extroverted, you talk to everybody and everybody, um, anybody and everybody versus an introvert who's just going to be more withdrawn. Um, that seclusion comment earlier is so important, but we don't want to misunderstand the introvert to be depressed, right? So we have to take personality type um, and temperament into consideration. Some of the other causes of depression and anxiety that are more um, internally focused and versus um, external situations or circumstances is the pressure of unrelenting standards, um, the pressure of having too much responsibility, um, high expectations of oneself or others, being hyper-focused on self-improvement. I see this one a lot in Christians especially because we are supposed to walk towards being more like Christ. But if we do that in our own strength, it will cause depression and anxiety. It puts too much pressure on us if we forget to do it with the strength of Christ to become more like Christ. Um, some of the external factors are being too busy. Uh, social pressure, peer pressure, all the things Father James already t touched on. Having too many options, too much stimulation. These are all factors that contribute to depression and anxiety. Another one I find is really common in Christians, especially, is being hypervigilant about pleasing other people. Right? We're, we're taught in, Matthew, or in Mark 12, 34, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I, when I hear that verse quoted in, from the pulpit, sometimes that last little phrase gets left off. Love your neighbor, period. That's not what the scripture says. But oftentimes it does get taught that way. And so we can get these mixed messages or false teachings about what does it mean to love other people. Um, so I like to think about, and make sure we all remember the oxygen masks um, uh, analogy from the airplane. Right? We cannot help those around us until we have taken care of ourselves first. And that is a principle that goes way beyond the airplane. Right? That is a life principle of how we can overcome depression and anxiety. So question number seven, common causes of depression and anxiety include social pressure, hypervigilance about self-improvement, strong inner tension, um, which we also call ambivalence or polarization. That's, that's basically when you have two opposite feelings that are just equally strong. Unrelenting standards of striving and perfection. So what's one thing, I'm gonna invite you to write down, one thing you can do to reduce, not eliminate, but just reduce, like the volume knob, reduce stress in your life based on these common factors. How many of you are familiar with the serenity prayer? Okay, so the serenity prayer um, is, the, the first part, portion of it is, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Now for those of you that don't know, there is a second half of that prayer, which is fabulous, but I won't go into it right now. 
the point is, is that we can't change what we can't change. And so our, our purpose is then to focus on what we can change and pray about what we can change. Ask God to give us that clarity and discernment about what, what is it that I can change. And what I want to say is we, most of the time we cannot change our external circumstances, but we can change our internal reactions. And that's where the internal dialogue comes into play. If there's constantly negative self-talk, then that's something that can be changed. So I want to share with you three things to do to help um, the young people in your life, yourself, anybody. Um, these three things will create change. Because these three things you can control. The first one is to, well, the first two are going to be about improving your own self-care. So putting on that oxygen mask before you try helping other people. The first one is modeling a healthy lifestyle. Most children will not adopt healthy habits with food and exercise unless they are taught how. Nutrition, such as like probiotics, for example, is very important because there's more serotonin in your gut than there is in your brain. So if, if your kids, if you are not getting a healthy diet, the serotonin is imbalanced in your body that can create um, the environment internally, chemically speaking, for depression and anxiety. Now serotonin is a neurotransmitter, it regulates mood. So it's very important that we have that um, balanced in our bodies. Too much serotonin can actually create um, heavy sleep, sleepiness. Um, so a lot of the SSRIs, the medications for depression and anxiety, um, it's a trial and error process because some people will just soak up that serotonin that gets um, released as a result of that medication and it makes them too sleepy. Okay, so the second one is modeling healthy self-talk that reflects a godly self-love. So we have to love ourselves in order to love our neighbor, but our world and even our immaturity were brought into this world very self-absorbed, right? Very much like me, 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 I want what I want when I want it. Well, we all try to grow out of that. That's part of our spiritual ascesis. So in that process of of trying to become less selfish, sometimes we can throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Sometimes we can become so unselfish that we become the martyr, and not in the healthy way that we we have in our church. I mean, martyr, small m, uh, victimized, like woe is me, um, but put that plastic smile on because I'm just going to do it all for everybody and um, sacrifice myself. We can only do that for a certain amount of time. So maybe we are called to self-sacrifice at times, but it cannot be a long-term lifestyle plan. So parents who, or um, teachers, caregivers, anybody, my encouragement to you about modeling healthy self-talk is not to say negative things about yourself in front of young people, really in front of anybody, but especially young people. So for example, I, I work mostly with women, and um, gosh, 90% of my caseload, they have children. So one, one case in particular comes to mind where 
this what this mother was constantly putting herself down about her body image oh I need to lose weight or oh I can't believe these pants fit so tight in front of her children and um, her daughter in particular and her daughter went on to develop an eating disorder and so we talked about the connection there and of course she's trying to forgive herself for contributing to this eating disorder not that she caused it but contributed so the more this mother started to take care of herself um, nutritionally and her activity and actually saying honey I'm sorry we're not going to be able to watch that movie together mom needs to go to the gym mom needs to make sure we go to the grocery store so we can actually buy food to prepare instead of just grabbing fast food from this event to that event right so really it's a lifestyle of self-care and then it changed the whole family environment and her daughter improved thirdly pray for your anxiety and depression not for it to go away to go away but for God to comfort it so the loved one the loved one in your life who suffers from anxiety and depression pray for their anxiety and depression not for it to go away that would make your life a lot easier right it's tempting to pray that but instead that that your loved one would learn how to comfort that God, that they would feel God's comfort. He wants, the good shepherd wants to comfort our pain. So inviting God into your pain, um, Psalms is a really great, you know, uh, collection of books or chapters that can teach us how to pray in this way of inviting God into our pain. So I'm gonna share a brief prayer with you and then we'll go over question eight and we'll be done here. And we'll do uh, questions and answers. So here's an example of how you might pray for your anxiety. Lord, please infuse my anxious parts with your presence. Please use my anxiety to draw me close to you. When I feel anxious, help me pause and listen to the inner alarm and comfort the need or the desire inside. May your spirit remind these anxious parts of me that you are always with me even in my anxiety and disappointment, just like Peter trying to walk on the water. So number eight, how do we help those around us who may be struggling with anxiety and depression? You can circle all that apply. And the first one, tell them to pray more. I can't remember if I said this earlier, but I wanna make sure I say it now. That's not bad advice, right? But it's all about the timing and the tone, right? Pray more is about timing and tone. So any kind of advice is about timing and tone. 